Hi guys and welcome back to another true crime and makeup time video. If you're new here, my name is Zara and I post a new true crime video every single week. So if you love makeup and you love true crime, I hope you enjoy these videos. And if you have any cool case suggestions, definitely leave them in the comments down below. I would love to know your thoughts. Today's story is about Jennifer Cave and I have to warn you the details are graphic once we get into it. Jennifer Cave was a young woman and she was getting her life on track. She was doing really great, super excited about a new job. And then one day she was found dead in the most horrific way. Was her best friend involved? That's what we're going to be discussing today. And let's get into it. So Jennifer Cave was born on 12th March, 1984 in Bishop Texas and her mother Sharon says she was like a Gerber baby. She was soft, round and very beautiful. Jennifer had red hair, her grandpa's blue eyes and she was just extremely beautiful and a good baby. She grew up in a quiet farmhouse just out of town and the farm that she grew on grew up on they shared like this like a fence line with a legendary place known as King Ranch. Her parents were Charlie and Sharon and they bought the ranch in 1983, a year or so after they got married and Jennifer had two sisters and one brother. Her mother Sharon was a really kind, warm woman, someone who would just like greet you with a warm hug like no matter if she didn't like know you well or not. And she spent her time like worrying about others more than she worried about herself. Charlie, her dad, named Jennifer his Fafa, and I guess she became like his sidekick. She was the daughter that was more like a tomboy. She played sports, she did a lot of fishing, she would catch butterflies. She was just like her dad's little sidekick. She was a super daddy's girl, but her father said that she was just like another son to him, which I think that comes across as like weird, but I think she was just like a tomboy, so she was like his second boy in a way, but she was daddy's girl, you know what I mean? Like, I think it, when I say it, it sounds weird, but I think he meant it in a good way. So her parents were saying like, even before Jennifer started school, they just knew she was like scary smart. She was really smart. And all the kids attended public schools and all her other kids had to study, but Jennifer never had to study. She just got everything. She just knew everything. She picked up everything super easily. She had like a near photographic memory, but no matter how intelligent she was, she never really had a lot of confidence in school. When she started school, she actually also started wearing braces and then um, glasses. So she, you know, lost her confidence in that sense there. She was pretty withdrawn, self-conscious, and she still continued playing sports. She played volleyball, basketball, tennis, and she was even on the school like council board. And then as she grew up, um, her and her sister Jennifer, they both became cheerleaders. And the place where she grew up, Bishop in Texas, it's super slow, life moves super slow, and it's a really safe place to grow up. And everyone kind of like knows each other. It's comfortable. It's a friendly town and everybody knows each other, but everyone's in bed by like 9 p.m. That's what Jennifer's mother, Sharon, said about the town. Now, as Jennifer was growing up, her parents ended up getting divorced. So Sharon and Charlie, they get divorced. And then Sharon, soon enough, she meets a new man and she falls in love with him. This man's name was Jim. And the kids, like all the kids, they loved him too. He was a really nice man. Now, it was junior high when Jennifer really began to change a little bit. She started wearing contact lenses. She started to try and get a little bit more confident. She embraced, you know, the cheerleader vibes. And she was just kind of like becoming a little bit more 
well, exposing herself more to the open world. She was losing like the tomboy vibe and just becoming a little bit more girly. And kind of like as soon as when this was happening, Sharon then moves her family to Corpus Christi. And Jennifer was like, the hell, like I'm finally finding my feet and you're going to move us. It was a much larger city and Jennifer kind of felt a little bit more overwhelmed than her siblings. Her siblings loved it, but Jennifer just was unsure about it. But soon enough, she, you know, settled in well and she really didn't have to study that much. She just, everything just came super easy to her in terms of academics. As most kids do, Jennifer then, you know, I wouldn't say caught in with the wrong crowd, but she started to rebel. Most kids do this. It is what it is. She began hanging out with people who weren't the best for her and started to take drugs, party, drink, you know, the things that you do as a kid. Throughout this whole kind of phase of Jennifer, um, her mother's boyfriend, Jim, he was actually kind of becoming Jennifer's confidant. Like they were really close and Jennifer really would go to him if she had any questions or things she wanted to talk about. They knew Jennifer wasn't a bad girl in that kind of sense. She wasn't like malicious. She was just trying to figure herself out. She was trying to figure out what she wanted from her life. And she probably just wanted to experiment. Now her mother knew that Jennifer dabbled in drugs, also that she was drinking. And she mainly put it down to Jennifer just hung out with the wrong people. Then when Jennifer was 21, she began attending Texas State University. And she went here as a finance major, but then she dropped out quickly after one semester and then attended the community college called Austin Community College. And over here, honestly, she just had a bunch of friends who loved to party and drink and hang out. And she loved that environment too. And even though Jen was involved in this, she also had like specific goals in her mind that she did want to achieve eventually. Now, Jennifer had a lot of friends, like I said, and one of these friends of hers who would go on to become one of her close friends, his name was Colton Petoniak. He was a 22-year-old junior at the University of Texas, and he came from a private Catholic school in Little Rock, Arkansas. He had, you know, no criminal history in Arkansas, and his academic record was spotless. His father owned this successful machinery company and his family came from a upper middle class neighborhood. He actually had a religious background. He used to serve as an altar boy. And if you don't know what an altar boy is, they basically assist the priest in Catholic church and like serve communion and do those kinds of things. And Colton, like Jennifer, he was brilliant. He like often made the honor roll but he wasn't like what you would label as a nerd, even though he was so smart. He did really well in sports. He played football, he played basketball and he was smart, but he was really outgoing and he was a lot of fun to be around. He was like a partier too. He actually came to the University of Texas on like massive scholarships. I think I read like he got $150,000 in scholarships. So I think that's a lot. But while he was at the university, he was um, charged with some drug offenses and his family knew about this. They, you know, helped him and alcohol, you know, was kind of involved too, as it is with most young kids. But his parents, what they didn't know, they didn't know that he was actually dealing drugs and to what extent he was dealing drugs and what his alcohol use was like and things like that in the year of 2005. So he was actually a really good student and earned, you know, the respect of his teachers and things like that. But there was also a dark side to him that a lot of his friends recalled. 
He began using drugs when he was only in high school and he did seem to have a violent streak. And one of the things that he would do was push like younger students' heads into water fountains whenever they were having drinks and it's like such a lame thing to do. So back in Austin when, you know, he went there, Jennifer and him became friends and they weren't, you know, romantically involved at all, but they were close. They often hung out at restaurants and bars and clubs and they would drink and party together. And those who knew him said that they knew that he could always get cocaine and other drugs like very easily. And since Jennifer really enjoyed the party life, she easily befriended Colton when he moved to Austin too. Now, some of his college friends obviously began buying drugs from Colton. And I mean, I'm guessing a lot of his friends were friends with him because of the access to drugs, because when you're in uni like that, you want to party, you know what I mean? Like, and if you're going to be a drug user, why not take it from your friend? It seems safer getting it from your friend than, you know, going through the streets and circulating with other drug dealers and trying to, you know, get drugs from them. You don't know what drugs they're supplying you with. Whereas with your friend, more often than not, you would trust him, right? So before long, Colton was walking around approaching students in the street, like, you know, if they wanted drugs and things like that, he became like a full-blown drug dealer. Now, in terms of Jennifer and Colton's relationship, it seemed like Colton was really like, like he really liked Jennifer, like he was smitten with her. And she knew about this because she would tell her mom, like, you know, Colton likes me and blah, blah, blah. But she just was not into him. She did not see him that way at all. Now, when I was researching this case, there's actually a book that I ended up like reading and it was called A Descent Into Hell and basically outlines like all these conversations with Jennifer's mother. So I found that super interesting. So apparently most of the time Jennifer would go to Colton's apartment, like that's where she would hang out with him, obviously, because he was dealing so many drugs he would like pull out rolls and rolls of cash and like show it to jennifer and he would supply her with drugs for free of course why wouldn't he now because he was low-key into jennifer he would give her like whatever drugs she wanted all the drugs she could need he would take her out he would buy her food and essentially like they meshed really really well together and they both loved to party and i feel like that's what that was like their driving force of them being such good friends. One time, Jennifer and Colton were at his apartment and he tells Jennifer like, look, I love you. I think that, you know, you and I belong together. But Jennifer, she didn't feel that way. And she states that Colton, he got so angry at her response that he actually pulled out a knife on Jennifer. Jennifer then like ran away and like hid in the apartment and then apparently a friend, a friend of theirs came and intervened. Not long after, Jennifer, you know, she goes and she tells friends, like, they had talked, but, you know, Colton wanted to be more than friends. But that after, you know, a conversation that they both agreed that they would just remain friends. Like, that was what was best for them. Maybe she truly believed that he could turn off his feelings for her and bury them and they could just move on and be friends. Friends could see, like, Jennifer's friends could see that this relationship with Colton was super unhealthy, but... Jennifer would give him like third, fourth, fifth chances. And when I think about, like when I think about it, I feel like the reason why she did this is because she probably wanted access to the drugs and to party. And it was like a convenient, you know, friendship for her. And I know that sounds strange, but it's not uncommon for people to do that. Like, you know, especially at that age, it's like, it's a convenient friendship to have. Now, as the time went on, the next couple of years went on, Colton got deeper and deeper into drugs 
while Jennifer, she continued to drop dabble in drugs here and there, you know, like cocaine, meth, and, you know, pretty serious drugs, actually. But she was actually trying to improve her life. She was trying to get her life back on track, I would say. And throughout this period, Jennifer, you know, would date other men. Colton would date other women. And they had kind of like separate lives in that sense, but they remained friends the entire time. Jennifer would actually have a couple of relationships throughout this time, but it was like she would think she was in love and then it was nothing serious. But Colton, he actually had this one girlfriend. Her name was Laura Hall and she was a law student and they met at a party in the year of 2005. And she liked Colton a lot, even though technically he treated her like shit, like he did not treat her well. She essentially was obsessed with him. He ended their relationship soon after meeting, but he continued to keep her around to just use her for sex, essentially. And she was like a willing participant of this. She was fine with it. But she was actually jealous of the relationship that Colton and Jennifer shared. Like she, because they were close and she just felt like it was not right in her eyes. She kind of despised Jennifer. Like, let's be real. She didn't like Jennifer. And that's because she was obsessed with Colton and she just saw Jennifer as this rival, even though she wasn't. It didn't matter to her that Jennifer was never interested in Colton and that she was actually dating other men, multiple men. And it still never crossed Laura's mind. Like Laura was just like, no, Jennifer's a threat. Now I mentioned Jennifer was trying to get her life back on track. So in August of 2005, Jennifer goes for an interview um, at a law firm. It was a small law firm called Grissom and Thompson. And she was actually just applying for like a small um, administrative role. She was actually just going to be the assistant and um, the secretary. There were two positions that the law firm was trying to film, which was like a part-time admin role and then a receptionist. So she applied for both. But, you know, even though she applied for these part-time roles, the uh, manager that interviewed her was pretty impressed with Jennifer and like was like, okay, what can we do and give this girl you know, a little bit more work? So he asked her to come in the following morning and meet with like all the lawyers of the firm. And so Jennifer agreed. So the following morning she dresses up and she goes to meet with these lawyers. So she meets with Bill Thompson, who was one of the partners, and he ends up offering her like a way bigger role than what she had initially applied for. He thought that she was a really good fit for the office and he ended up offering her the full-time admin role, the administrative assistant role, which was yeah full-time and a lot more money than what she initially applied for. This job role required, you know, multitasking, scheduling cases and motions and probably helping with drafting a lot of the big case documents. But Jennifer was like, I can do this. I'm up for it. So she rings her mom and she tells her like, oh my God, I got this job, you know, this position. And she was super excited about it. And Sharon, her mom said, you could hear how excited she was for this role. Like she was so determined to get it together and to do it. You know, she essentially just wanted to finally be on like the straight and narrow path. She wanted to build her life, you know, make something of herself. And she felt like this was that stepping stone into doing that. So on the night of August 16th, she was due to start her job on August 17th, the following day. So on that night, Jennifer was like getting her stuff together and planning an early night so she could wake up early the next day for her new job, her new exciting venture. And at 8.30 PM, she gets into her pajamas and she tells her roommate, like, hey, make sure, you know, I wake up in the morning. I've got my job. Like, don't, you know, let me sleep in. But around 9.30 p.m. that night, she ends up having this phone call with a friend 
Michael Rodriguez and she tells him like, okay, my plans have changed. I was supposed to just be in bed all night, but I'm going now to meet Colton. And the only reason she was going to meet Colton is because Colton was expressing to her that he was having some issues and yeah, he wanted to see her that night. Colton had apparently called her, called Jennifer and wanted to congratulate her on this new job that, um, you know, she just got. And he wanted to also celebrate with her and treat her to, you know, like a night out. Um, and he also had some issues that he wanted to discuss with her. And like, I feel like this already is a bad friend because if you have a job interview the next day, like me as a friend, I'm like, oh my God, you better stay at home. You better get your rest. You know, you better like do the right thing. But because they were like, you know, into drugs and into partying and stuff, he thought, how do you celebrate with a friend? You go out and you do those same things, right? So essentially he was a bad influence on her. So even though, you know, Jennifer knew she had to sleep early and I think like it, it I never read anywhere that she was addicted to drugs, but you would kind of think that maybe she was or addicted to the partying or just kind of really liked that lifestyle, you know? And like, that's a hard thing to overcome if you're so used to that. And she's trying to get herself together. And here's this person who knows that she's easily persuaded and persuades her into doing this. So she agrees and she's like, okay, I'll go out, but I'll just have like a couple drinks with him and some dinner. And then, you know, I'll come like straight back. So around 11 PM that night, a few of Jennifer's, Jennifer's friends had seen them like out and about her and Colton on sixth street, which is like a um, famous street for the students to go and like hang out at. And it's like common for everyone to be out. It was basically an area of clubs and bars downtown in Austin. And that's where all the college kids would hang out. So while Jennifer and Colton were actually out, they bump into a bunch of Jennifer's like friends. So the two groups, like Jennifer's group and then Colton's, I mean, Jennifer and Colton and then the the group that they bump into, they all decide to go out and just be together and you know have, have more drinks together. While they were at the bar, you know, Jennifer was talking to some of her girlfriends and Colton was like flirting with some of them and they were just basically enjoying themselves. Colton also apparently made a phone call to like purchase some cocaine for that night. Around midnight, so now it's not early anymore, Jennifer, like, but around midnight, they decide to go to like this place across the road, which is like called Cheers Shot Bar. And as they were about to go into the that bar, Jen uh, Colton pulls Jennifer away. And that's the last time the two of them were seen like walking together on 6th Street. 6th Street. So Michael, that same Michael that Jennifer had spoken to earlier, gets a call again from Jennifer at around 12.08 a.m. that same night, early morning. And as she's on the phone to him, she starts to like sound frustrated. She's telling Michael that the only people that can help Colton is jail. Like the police, you know, will have to do something about Colton because he's out of control. Michael said that she didn't seem like afraid or anxious. She just kind of seemed annoyed. So then as she's talking to Michael, she's like, oh, I'll call you right back. So then she hangs up. And then about an hour later, Jennifer calls Michael again. And she's describing to Michael how, how Colton is like super drunk. And as they're on the phone, Michael can hear Jennifer yelling, what are you doing? Like, that's not my car. Like, you know, yelling at Colton because he's probably obviously drunk and acting belligerent. And then he hears Jennifer say, oh my God, he's pissing on that car. Again, to Michael, she didn't sound like she was afraid. She just sounded like 
she's dealing with a drunk person. You know how it is. And she's just like, oh, I'll call you back, Michael. And then she hangs up. So now it is the morning of August 17th, 2005. And Jennifer, this was her first day at her um, new job, right? So she was supposed to go in and that was, she was going to like be oriented at the job and they were going to show everything. And she doesn't show up. So the law firm, they called the mobile they had on file, which was Jennifer's several times and she didn't answer. So they then sent an office manager to her house, left a note and said, you know, call when you get home. And now it's 3.30 PM. Remember that guy, Bill Thompson, who interviewed her, he had not heard back from Jennifer and I've never heard of this before, but he ends up calling Jennifer's mother, Sharon, to say like, okay, you know, Jennifer didn't report into a job. I'm just letting you know. And can you guys let me know if this is a common thing in America? Because I just don't think Australia would do this. Like, I don't think any employer in Australia would like call your mother. How, how do they even have your number, right? Like, just let me know if that's a common thing. So now Bill, he calls Sharon back in Corpus Christi, Texas. So Sharon was like, okay, well, what the hell? Now Sharon was very close to Jennifer and she spoke to Jennifer multiple times a day. So the fact that a law firm, you know, the new job that she was supposed to attend calls and says, Hey, Jennifer hasn't come into work. This was pretty distressing for Sharon. So she ends up calling T-Mobile, which is the um, like mobile authority that Jennifer was using. And she asked about Jennifer's activity on that day and because the account was in her name like uh, Sharon was able to obtain this information so because of this Sharon gets the last three numbers that Jennifer had called um that day and she and she calls that number one of the people that Jennifer had spoken to was Scott Eagle and this was Jennifer's ex-boyfriend and she also tried to call Colton but he didn't answer and then she calls Michael and Michael tells Sharon about, you know, his conversations with Jennifer and what was happening that night because he was the last one that had like spoken to her that he knew of. So while she was talking to Michael on another phone, Colton calls Sharon on like her personal number. And Sharon asks Colton like, okay, well, have you seen Jennifer? And Colton's like, no, I haven't seen Jennifer. Like, what are you talking about? And Michael was still on the other line. So Michael was on Sharon's business phone and then Colton called Sharon's like personal number. And so he heard the like exchange and Michael was like, Colton's lying. Like, I know Jennifer and Colton were together last night. Colton's cell phone records show that he exchanged several text messages with his ex, Laura Hall, on this day. And the, like, content of these text messages was not able to be recovered. But one text message was able to be recovered, and that was from Laura. And it said, what do you mean? That's all that they could recover. And this text message was followed by a 13 minute call between the two of them at 6 a.m. that same day. About the same time that the law firm called Sharon, so in the afternoon, Colton was actually buying some supplies at a hardware store. This hardware store was like very close to his apartment. He asked for a saw to cut up a turkey that he was frying. So they give him um, an eight inch hacksaw in addition to that, he buys some face masks, ammonia, and some other cleaning products. The surveillance footage shows that he was um, alone when he was buying these things. And another receipt shows that on the way home, he stopped at Burger, Burger King and got food to eat. Around 6.30 p.m. that evening, so the uh, August 17th, Colton gets a call from Scott, Jennifer's ex. He asks um, Colton, like, where is Jennifer? 
And he confronts him like, you were the last person to see her. So where is she? Colton then says, oh my God, I told you, I haven't seen her. Like, what are you talking about? I haven't seen her. And then he ends the call by saying, this bitch is going to get me arrested. And that was the conversation with Scott. So at about 8.30 PM that night, Colton then gets calls from Sharon and he's like, oh my God. Like he starts getting annoyed at Sharon calling him, asking about where Jennifer is. Instead of being concerned about his friend that he just last saw missing he tells Sharon like dude stop calling me I'm eating my pizza and he insists like I have not seen Jennifer since the night before like I haven't seen her leave me alone Sharon then tells Colton like okay I've contacted the police and now the police are going to handle this investigation and she tells Colton like they're going to come for you um to, to see you at your apartment so you better be ready Colton's cell phone records then show that after this phone call his cell phone was now traveling on a highway he was going interstate. The um, cell phone towers were pinging and it was showing that he was on his way to Mexico. Surveillance later shows that Colton was in the car and he was crossing the uh, border lines with someone else at 2.41 a.m. And that someone else was Laura Hall. So now, like, Sharon is desperate. So she comes with Jim. She drives to Austin, Texas the next day on August 18th. And she's like, I'm going to look for Jennifer myself. So before they sort of like get into town, they hear from a detective that had told them that Jennifer's la uh, car was last seen parked at Colton's apartment. So they go to Colton's apartment and they're like banging on the windows and the doors are like, you know, Colton open up. So officers um, from the Austin police department then arrive, but then they tell Sharon and Jim, like, we can't enter this apartment. Jennifer is an adult and she's technically not considered missing until she's missing for 24 hours. Also, it's Colton's apartment and they need a warrant to enter in. Now, the thing is, if it's August 18th, Jennifer is missing for 24 hours at this point, but I guess missing by who, right? So they, they can't like determine a time to sort of round up that 24 hours, you know? So after the last officer left the scene, Sharon and Jim, they actually contact a locksmith and they're like, open up this goddamn apartment. But he was unable to do so as well. There was like a deadbolt um, on the door. So at this point, Sharon and Jim are like, oh my God, we're running out of time. Like we need to know where the hell Jennifer is. She's not answering her calls. She's not coming back home. Like where is she? And now Colton is nowhere to be found. So Jim was like, fuck it. And he enters Colton's apartment through a window that they managed to like Jimmy open and they unlocked it. So they had a way in now. So Jim, he, you know, enters into Colton's apartment and he is not even thinking about what he's about to find. He's just like, okay, I'm just going to look around, see if Jennifer is here. So he enters, he turns on a light and he sees that no one is there. But as he's walking through, there's like an odor that's becoming more and more pungent so he you know continues walking through the house and as he walks through the hallway he enters the bathroom and as soon as he opens the bathroom door like that smell just hits him in the face and crazily enough through the open window back at the front of the apartment um Sharon could like smell this too and I don't even know what they were thinking Jim you know he's in the bathroom now he turns on the bathroom light and as he does so, he stops and he looks and he just says, oh my God. As he finally accepted what his eyes were seeing in front of him, he rushes back out 
and he's panicked. He tells Sharon, you know, call 911, call 911, I've got a body. His fiance's daughter was not only found dead in the bathtub, oh my God, but her head and both her hands had been severed and they were lying next to the body. They were placed in a bag next to the floor of the tub. Jennifer had been shot stabbed and her body had been mutilated. Once he saw Jennifer's body, Jim, he just ran out of the apartment and called 911. He knew he had to prevent Sharon from entering that apartment and seeing what she was about to see. He knew that she could never ever see that. And I mean, how ca how can you? Uh, thank goodness he stopped her. Thank cuz she fought. She fought trying to get through and be like, "What? What 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 happened? What happened?" Cuz she didn't get it and he didn't explain it. He had to physically restrain her and Sharon was screaming like, I need to go see my baby. Like she knew it was Jennifer, but she didn't know the condition that she was in. Jim, you know, after calling 911, he turns and walks back inside the apartment, but he was careful because he knew he had to, pre uh, pre what's it called? Preserve this crime scene. Everything could be evidence and he didn't want to disturb it as he was um, speaking to 911. Colton's apartment was cleared by the police department and it was sealed until a search warrant could be executed. Isn't that crazy that a warrant is still required when freaking there's a dead body in there like cut up? So the police said it was like a typical male college student's apartment except the kitchen was like immaculate. Two shell casings were you know on the coffee table and there was obviously a mutilated body in the bathtub. So the autopsy revealed that the cause of death was um, due to this single gunshot wound. And the way it like was shot, it went through the right arm into the torso, lacerating the aorta before lodging just under the skin of Jennifer's left back. So it got stuck. And the aorta is like a major artery, right? So I'm guessing that's what killed her. And I'm about to read the forensic findings. So if you're grossed out, like skip ahead. The other findings were um, the head and the hands were severed from her body. There were multiple post-mortem stab wounds to the chest and the neck of Jennifer. There was a bullet against Jennifer's skull that was fired into the head through her severed neck. And the shell casing for that like shot into her head was only discovered after they moved the body and it was found in the bathtub. So from what I understand, she's already dead, but then you're going to shoot a gun into like her cut neck. Like what a sicko. So the police are then investigating and they see that Colton's car is still parked at the bottom of the apartment complex. So then they search his car and then they find a pistol, a Smith and Wesson pistol, a 38 caliber was found in the vehicle. And that was obviously determined to be the weapon that shot Jennifer in the car. They also found this roadmap, which was missing like a page um, that showed directions from Texas to Mexico. So they left like plenty of evidence. Now, as Colton's apartment was being searched, he was out in Mexico partying it up with Laura. No cares in the world. They went to this like hotel, like a nice hotel, and they were watching some like ultimate fighting championship. They actually inquired about selling Laura's Cadillac to see like, you know, how much money they could get for it. Meanwhile, like while all this was happening, Laura's dad ends up calling the Austin police department and says, Hey, I think my daughter is with Colton. And I think like, I'm worried for her safety. And the reason for this is I think Laura called her dad and said something about like, you know, Colton, he was going to be arrested for something. And they believe that, you know, he did something wrong, but Laura's dad was like, Laura, you an idiot. So that's why he called the police. But Colton and Laura having a good time in Mexico, they even take this picture together, right? Like I'll show it here. They're inside like a playpen 
in this hotel and they're just like smiling happily like two little kids. Now, Laura's car was this green Cadillac that drew, you know, obvious attention and it was caught on CCTV camera everywhere. Crime Stoppers tips actually led to their, uh, like their location, which led to their capture. And five days into their little trip, the Mexican, Mexican authorities caught them and released them to the um, Austin PD. But soon after this, Laura was actually just released. Like she was not held with the Austin PD. Now she was later questioned, but she wasn't arrested. And she was mainly arrested because she would talk to anyone and she would tell everyone, like anyone who would listen, like we weren't fugitives. We were just like on a little vacation. Now it seemed that on the night that Jennifer was last seen, she was hanging out with Colton and through her conversations with Michael, you know, Colton's drinking and partying was getting out of hand. Colton was acting wild and Jennifer was trying to help him. It's believed that she would have driven him back to his apartment and she would have, you know, gotten him inside. She would have helped him get inside the apartment. That's how she was inside the apartment. And once they were inside together is when it's believed that Colton attacked Jennifer. The next morning, you know, once he sobered up, he then goes to that hardware store. He buys the saw for his turkey that he plans to cut up. He buys the cleaning supplies and he did what he did. He then calls Laura and shows Laura the body of Jennifer laying in his bathtub. And they came up with the plan, you know, to run. And it is believed that Laura even mutilated Jennifer's body. Ugh. Colton, however, claimed that he could never hurt Jennifer and he cared about her too much. Colton pleaded not guilty to the murder of Jennifer. He claimed that he blacked out and he had no idea what happened. He was way too high and way too drunk. The prosecution didn't even have a motive since they were friends, but the evidence all over his apartment was way too damning not to charge Colton. On Monday, January 29th, 2007, Colton was convicted of murder. They sentenced him to 55 years in prison, even though he will be eligible for parole once he serves half of that. And I'm like, 55 years, he he would have been 20 in his 20s. 55 years, he's going to be 70. And that's what he gets for doing that to a human being. As for Laura... DNA evidence recovered showed that she did have something to do with the mutilating Jennifer's body and it's not exactly released what or at least I couldn't find it but you know that gunshot wound into Je uh, Jennifer's severed neck like that was determined to have been caused by Laura so again I'm trying to think like Jennifer was already cut up at this point and you're gonna shoot a bullet into her severed head? Like, what a sicko. Laura, however, claimed she was innocent. This meant that they could charge her with hindering apprehension, which is a third degree felony, because when they fled, Colton was actually wanted for murder, which is also evidence tampering, which is also a third degree felony. In 2007, the jury found Laura Hall not guilty of hindering apprehension, but they did find her guilty of evidence tampering. After they read the verdict on Laura, Sharon, Jennifer's mom, read a statement saying that she hopes that Laura and Colton are haunted with this for the rest of their lives. In 2009, Laura appealed her sentencing and she actually got a resentencing hearing to like determine if she was eligible for a new sentence. And in 2010, she actually got a harsher sentence of 10 years in prison. And she also had to pay $16,000 in a fine. They believed, like, I guess with some evidence that L Laura actually played a very key role in actually participating in the dismemberment of um, Jennifer's body. So not only that gunshot wound, but they believe that she probably helped Colton do this. She didn't like, you know, 
Jennifer's relationship with Colton and that was her motive, jealousy. Colton is imprisoned at a maximum security prison in Texas. And as for Laura, she was actually credited with time served and made parole in 2018 and hasn't been heard from since. And I don't think she should have gotten parole if she, if there was clear evidence that she dismembered that body. Who can just walk into a place and dismember a body? And this case is so strange to me because what's the motive? Okay, Laura's was jealousy, but what was Colton's? He wanted Jennifer and okay, she didn't want him back. So you're going to kill her? You're going to, when people kill the thing they love, I just don't get it. Laura's jealousy, okay, because of a non-existent romantic relationship. Okay, Laura. For you to help this guy cover up a crime of this magnitude, like, if in fact she did, allegedly, whatever, but it's wild. As for Colton, I mean, maybe he just really wanted to be with Jennifer. They were friends for so many years at this point and what, he had enough? He's like, if I can't have you as a romantic relationship, I don't even want you as a friend. It's so weird. Maybe he tried like one final advance on her while he was drunk and she rejected him again and then he just snapped. But then to party it up with your ex in Mexico after just makes no sense. I mean, if you really cared for Jennifer, would you do that? And then if you really cared for her, when she rejected you, where'd you get the gun from? Like, how did you shoot her in the bathtub? Why was there no blood or anything in the rest of the apartment? Why was it just in the bathtub? Maybe she was trying to, maybe Jennifer was trying to help him. Maybe he was throwing up or something. Like, who knows how they ended up there and who knows how they even wound up in this wild, crazy situation. Because it really is crazy. You don't think these things are going to happen to you in college. And that too from a friend of yours. Someone that you have known for years. What do you guys think? What are your theories? Sharon, her mother, says that she just wish, she wished she knew why. Like why this had to happen. Why did they do the things they did to her body afterwards? She says every day she questions herself. She says why, why, why? But she can't live in a why world, right? Like you, you have to move on somehow. And I don't know how you do. Jennifer's life was taken so brutally and her family is left with no answers still. So let me know your thoughts on today's case, guys. I would love to hear them down in the comments below. Thank you so much for watching. And I will see you in the next one, guys. Besitos. Bye.